This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne Part Three, Chapter Two There was no longer any doubt as to the pirates' intentions. They had dropped anchor at a short distance from the island, and it was evident that the next day, by means of their boats, they purposed to land on the beach. Cyrus Harding and his companions were ready to act, but, determined though they were, they must not forget to be prudent. Perhaps their presence might still be concealed in the event of the pirates contenting themselves with landing on the shore, without examining the interior of the island. It might be, indeed, that their only intention was to obtain fresh water from the Mercy, and it was not impossible that the bridge, thrown across a mile and a half from the mouth, and the manufactory at the chimneys, might escape their notice. But why was that flag hoisted at the brig's peak? What was that shot fired for? Pure bravado, doubtless, unless it was a sign of the act of taking possession. Harding knew now that the vessel was well armed. And what had the colonists of Lincoln Island to reply to the pirates' guns? A few muskets only. However, observed Cyrus Harding, here we are in an impregnable position. The enemy cannot discover the mouth of the outlet, now that it is hidden under reeds and grass, and consequently it would be impossible for them to penetrate into Granite House. "'But our plantations, our poultry-yard, our corral, all, everything!' exclaimed Pencroft, stamping his foot. "'They may spoil everything, destroy everything, in a few hours!' "'Everything, Pencroft,' answered Harding, "'and we have no means of preventing them.' "'Are they numerous? That is the question,' said the reporter. "'If they are not more than a dozen, we shall be able to stop them. But forty, fifty, more, perhaps!' "'Captain Harding,' then said Ayrton, advancing towards the engineer, "'will you give me leave?' "'For what, my friend?' "'To go to that vessel to find out the strength of her crew.' "'But Ayrton,' answered the engineer, hesitating, "'you will risk your life.' "'Why not, sir?' "'That is more than your duty.' "'I have more than my duty to do,' replied Ayrton. "'Will you go to the ship in the boat?' asked Gideon Spilett. "'No, sir, but I, I will swim. A boat would be seen where a man may glide between wind and water.' "'Do you know that the brig is a mile and a quarter from the shore?' said Herbert. "'I am a good swimmer, Mr. Herbert.' "'I tell you it is risking your life,' said the engineer. "'That is no matter,' answered Ayrton. "'Captain Harding, I ask this as a favour. Perhaps it will be a means of raising me in my own eyes.' "'Go, Ayrton,' replied the engineer, who felt sure that a refusal would have deeply wounded the former convict, now become an honest man. "'I will accompany you,' said Pencroft. "'You mistrust me,' said Ayrton quickly. Then more humbly, "'Alas!' "'No, no!' exclaimed Harding with animation. No, Ayrton! Pencroft does not mistrust you. You interpret his words wrongly. 
"'Indeed,' returned the sailor, "'I only propose to accompany Ayrton as far as the islet. It may be, although it is scarcely possible, that one of these villains has landed, and in that case two men will not be too many to hinder him from giving the alarm. I will wait for Ayrton on the islet, and he shall go alone to the vessel, since he has proposed to do so.' These things agreed to, Ayrton made preparations for his departure. His plan was bold, but it might succeed, thanks to the darkness of the night. Once arrived at the vessel's side, Ayrton, holding on to the main chains, might reconnoitre the number, and perhaps overhear the intentions of the pirates. Ayrton and Pencroft, followed by their companions, descended to the beach. Ayrton undressed and rubbed himself with grease, so as to suffer less from the temperature of the water, which was still cold. He might indeed be obliged to remain in it for several hours. Pencroft and Neb, during this time, had gone to fetch the boat, moored a few hundred feet higher up on the bank of the Mercy, and by the time they returned, Ayrton was ready to start. A coat was thrown over his shoulders, and the settlers all came round him to press his hand. Ayrton then shoved off with Pencroft in the boat. It was half-past ten in the evening when the two adventurers disappeared in the darkness. Their companions returned to wait at the chimneys. The channel was easily traversed, and the boat touched the opposite shore of the islet. This was not done without precaution, for fear lest the pirates might be roaming about there. But after a careful survey it was evident that the islet was deserted. Ayrton then, followed by Pencroft, crossed it with a rapid step, scaring the birds nestled in the holes in the rocks. Then, without hesitating, he plunged into the sea, and swam noiselessly in the direction of the ship, in which a few lights had recently appeared, showing her exact situation. As to Pencroft, he crouched down in a cleft of the rock, and awaited the return of his companion. In the meanwhile, Ayrton, swimming with a vigorous stroke, glided through the sheet of water without producing the slightest ripple. His head just emerged above it, and his eyes were fixed on the dark hull of the brig, from which the lights were reflected in the water. He thought only of the duty which he had promised to accomplish, and nothing of the danger which he ran, not only on board the ship, but in the sea, often frequented by sharks. The current bore him along and he rapidly receded from the shore. Half an hour afterwards, Ayrton, without having been either seen or heard, arrived at the ship, and caught hold of the main chains. He took breath then, hoisting himself up, he managed to reach the extremity of the cutwater. There were drying several pairs of sailor's trousers. He put on a pair. Then, settling himself firmly, he listened. They were not sleeping on board the brig. On the contrary, they were talking, singing, laughing. And these were the sentences, accompanied with oaths, which principally struck Ayrton. "'Our brig is a famous acquisition. She sails well, and merits her name of the Speedy. She would show all the navy of Norfolk a clean pair of heels. Hurrah for her captain! Hurrah for Bob Harvey!' What Ayrton felt when he overheard this fragment of conversation may be understood when it is known that in this Bob Harvey he recognized one of his old Australian companions, a daring sailor, 
who had continued his criminal career. Bob Harvey had seized, on the shores of Norfolk Island, this brig, which was loaded with arms, ammunition, utensils, and tools of all sorts, destined for one of the Sandwich Islands. All his gang had gone on board, and pirates, after having been convicts, these wretches, more ferocious than the Malays themselves, scoured the Pacific, destroying vessels and massacring their crews. The convicts spoke loudly. They recounted their deeds, drinking deeply at the same time. And this is what Ayrton gathered. The actual crew of the Speedy was composed solely of English prisoners, escaped from Norfolk Island. Here it may be well to explain what this island was. In twenty-nine degrees two minutes south latitude, and one hundred sixty-five degrees forty-two minutes east longitude, to the east of Australia, is found a little island, six miles in circumference, overlooked by Mount Pitt, which rises to a height of eleven hundred feet above the level of the sea. This is Norfolk Island, once the seat of an establishment in which were lodged the most intractable convicts from the English penitentiaries. They numbered five hundred, under an iron discipline, threatened with terrible punishments, and were guarded by one hundred and fifty soldiers, and one hundred and fifty employed under the orders of the governor. It would be difficult to imagine a collection of greater ruffians. Sometimes, although very rarely, notwithstanding the extreme surveillance of which they were the object, many managed to escape, and, seizing vessels which they surprised, they infested the Polynesian archipelagos. Thus had Bob Harvey and his companions done. Thus had Ayrton formerly wished to do. Bob Harvey had seized the brig Speedy, anchored in sight of Norfolk Island. The crew had been massacred, and for a year this ship had scoured the Pacific, under the command of Harvey, now a pirate, and well known to Ayrton. The convicts were, for the most part, assembled under the poop, but a few, stretched on the deck, were talking loudly. The conversations still continued amid shouts and libations. Ayrton learned that chance alone had brought the speedy inside of Lincoln Island. Bob Harvey had never yet set foot on it. But, as Cyrus Harding had conjectured, finding this unknown land in his course, its position being marked on no chart, he had formed the project of visiting it, and, if he found it suitable, of making it the brig's headquarters. As to the black flag hoisted at the Speedy's peak, and the gun which had been fired, in imitation of men of war when they lower their colors, it was pure piratical bravado. It was in no way a signal, and no communication yet existed between the convicts and Lincoln Island. The settler's domain was now menaced with terrible danger. Evidently the island, with its water, its harbor, its resources of all kinds so increased in value by the colonists, and the concealment afforded by Granite House, could not but be convenient for the convicts. In their hands it would become an excellent place of refuge, and, being unknown, it would assure them, for a long time perhaps, impunity and security. Evidently also the lives of the settlers would not be respected, and Bob Harvey and his accomplices' first care would be to massacre them without mercy. 
Harding and his companions had, therefore, not even the choice of flying and hiding themselves in the island, since the convicts intended to reside there, and since, in the event of the speedy departing on an expedition, it was probable that some of the crew would remain on shore, so as to settle themselves there. Therefore it would be necessary to fight, to destroy every one of these scoundrels, unworthy of pity, and against whom any means would be right. So thought Ayrton, and he well knew that Cyrus Harding would be of his way of thinking. But was resistance, and in the last place, victory, possible? That would depend on the equipment of the brig, and the number of men which she carried. This Ayrton resolved learn at any cost, and as an hour after his arrival the vociferations had begun to die away, and as a large number of the convicts were already buried in a drunken sleep, Ayrton did not hesitate to venture on to the Speedy's deck, which the extinguished lanterns now left in total darkness. He hoisted himself on to the cutwater, and by the bowsprit arrived at the forecastle. Then, gliding among the convicts stretched here and there, he made the round of the ship, and found that the Speedy carried four guns, which would throw shot of from eight to ten pounds in weight. He found also, on touching them, that these guns were breech-loaders. They were, therefore, of modern make, easily used, and of terrible effect. As to the men lying on the deck, they were about ten in number, but it was to be supposed that more were sleeping down below. Besides, by listening to them, Ayrton had understood that there were fifty on board. That was a large number for the six settlers of Lincoln Island to contend with. But now, thanks to Ayrton's devotion, Cyrus Harding would not be surprised. He would know the strength of his adversaries, and would make his arrangements accordingly. There was nothing more for Ayrton to do but to return, and rendered to his companions an account of the mission with which he had charged himself, and he prepared to regain the bows of the brig so that he might let himself down into the water. But to this man whose wish was, as he had said, to do more than his duty, there came an heroic thought. This was to sacrifice his own life, but save the island and the colonists. Cyrus Harding evidently could not resist fifty ruffians, all well armed, who, either by penetrating by main force into Granite House, or by starving out the besieged, could obtain from them what they wanted. And then he thought of his preservers, those who had made him again a man, and an honest man, those to whom he owed all, murdered without pity, their works destroyed, their island turned into a pirate's den. He said to himself that he, Ayrton, was the principal cause of so many disasters, since his old companion, Bob Harvey, had but realized his own plans, and a feeling of horror took possession of him. Then he was seized with an irresistible desire to blow up the brig, and with her all whom she had on board. He would perish in the explosion, but he would have done his duty. Ayrton did not hesitate. To reach the powder-room, which is always situated in the after-part of a vessel, was easy. There would be no want of powder in a vessel which followed such a trade, and a spark would be enough to destroy it in an instant. Ayrton stole carefully along the between-decks, 
strewn with numerous sleepers, overcome more by drunkenness than sleep. A lantern was lighted at the foot of the mainmast, around which was hung a gun-rack, furnished with weapons of all sorts. Ayrton took a revolver from the rack, and assured himself that it was loaded and primed. Nothing more was needed to accomplish the work of destruction. He then glided towards the stern, so as to arrive under the brig's poop at the powder magazine. It was difficult to proceed along the dimly lighted deck without stumbling over some half-sleeping convict, who retorted by oaths and kicks. Ayrton was therefore more than once obliged to halt, but at last he arrived at the partition dividing the after-cabin, and found the door opening into the magazine itself. Ayrton, compelled to force it open, set to work. It was a difficult operation to perform without noise, for he had to break a padlock. But under his vigorous hand the padlock broke, and the door was open. At that moment a hand was laid on Ayrton's shoulder. "'What are you doing here?' asked a tall man, in a harsh voice, who, standing in the shadow, quickly threw the light of a lantern on Ayrton's face. Ayrton drew back. In the rapid flash of the lantern he had recognized his former accomplice, Bob Harvey, who could not have known him, as he must have thought Ayrton long since dead. "'What are you doing here?' again said Bob Harvey, seizing Ayrton by the waistband. But Ayrton, without replying, wrenched himself from his grasp, and attempted to rush into the magazine. A shot fired into the midst of the powder-casks, and all would be over. "'Help, lads!' shouted Bob Harvey. Had his shout two or three pirates awoke, jumped up, and, rushing on Ayrton, endeavoured to throw him down. He soon extricated himself from their grasp. He fired his revolver, and two of the convicts fell, but a blow from a knife which he could not ward off made a gash in his shoulder. Ayrton perceived that he could no longer hope to carry out his project. Bob Harvey had reclosed the door of the powder magazine, and a movement on the deck indicated a general awakening of the pirates. Ayrton must reserve himself to fight at the side of Cyrus Harding. There was nothing for him but flight. But was flight still possible? It was doubtful, yet Ayrton resolved to dare everything in order to rejoin his companions. Four barrels of the revolver were still undischarged. Two were fired. One, aimed at Bob Harvey, did not wound him, or at any rate only slightly, and Ayrton, profiting by the momentary retreat of his adversaries, rushed towards the companion-ladder to gain the deck. Passing before the lantern, he smashed it with a blow from the butt of his revolver. A profound darkness ensued, which favoured his flight. Two or three pirates, awakened by the noise, were descending the ladder at the same moment. A fifth shot from Ayrton laid one low and the others drew back, not understanding what was going on. Ayrton was on deck in two bounds, and three seconds later, having discharged his last barrel in the face of a pirate who was about to seize him by the throat, he leaped over the bulwarks into the sea. Ayrton had not made six strokes before shots were splashing around him like hail. What were Pencroft's feelings, sheltered under a rock on the islet? What were those of Harding, the reporter, Herbert, and Neb, crouched in the chimneys when they heard the reports on board the brig. They rushed out on to the beach, 
and their guns shouldered, they stood ready to repel any attack. They had no doubt about it themselves. Ayrton, surprised by the pirates, had been murdered, and perhaps the wretches would profit by the night to make a descent on the island. Half an hour was passed in terrible anxiety. The firing had ceased, and yet neither Ayrton nor Pencroft had reappeared. Was the islet invaded? Ought they not to fly to the help of Ayrton and Pencroft? But how? The tide being high at that time rendered the channel impassable. The boat was not there. We may imagine the horrible anxiety which took possession of Harding and his companions. At last, towards half-past twelve, a boat carrying two men touched the beach. It was Ayrton, slightly wounded in the shoulder, and Pencroft, safe and sound, whom their friends received with open arms. All immediately took refuge in the chimneys. There Ayrton recounted all that had passed, even to his plan for blowing up the brig, which he had attempted to put into execution. All hands were extended to Ayrton, who did not conceal from them that their situation was serious. The pirates had been alarmed. They knew that Lincoln Island was inhabited. They would land upon it in numbers and well armed. They would respect nothing. Should the settlers fall into their hands, they must expect no mercy. "'Well, we shall know how to die,' said the reporter. "'Let us go in and watch,' answered the engineer. "'Have we any chance of escape, Captain?' asked the sailor. "'Yes, Pencroft.' "'Huh! Uh, six against fifty. "'Yes, six, without counting. "'Who?' asked Pencroft. Cyrus did not reply, but pointed upwards. End of chapter.